Matthew chapter 14, we have come as far as verse 22. We finished with the feeding of the 5,000. If you guys weren't here with us last week, we had come that far. Uh, It is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels before the resurrection. And uh, as we went through it, it becomes clear why, you know, the end of that long day then and these 12 men each coming back with one basket not 13 baskets 12 and then sitting down with him at the end of a long day looking at him saying grace over that basket what a day that was and then we're told that Jesus here constrains his disciples it says in verse 22 and straightway Jesus constrained his disciples. They must have argued a bit. However, they did that with him. I'm not sure. He constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Now, John chapter 6 tells us what happened is that the multitudes wanted to take him by force and make him king. I mean... Anybody who gives out free food to 10,000 people ought to be king, you know. And uh, that attitude abides in so many places in the church. I mean, we've been watching this thing with COVID. You can see how it's set up for the Antichrist. Imagine if one person came up with a vaccine, the whole world would wonder after them, you know. And the world's going to get to such turmoil that somebody comes up with an answer Everybody's heart's going to, in desperation, move in that direction. You know, Jesus said, I've come in my Father's name, and you haven't received me. Another's going to come in his own name, and him you will receive. Isaiah says that Israel's going to make a covenant with hell and with death. So, you know, the, the, in the middle of all of that is this attitude of human beings in regards to getting something for nothing. And we're raising up a generation whose mantra is get free more than be free. There have been great prices paid for the freedom, however marred it is, that we have. But now there's this whole movement of get free, get free, uh, you know, socialism, communism. Um, socialism is what's yours is mine. Socialism works well, it runs out of other people's money, but socialism is what's yours is mine. Capitalism is. What's mine is mine. Christianity is what's mine is yours. And they're learning to give, you know, in all of these scenes. He takes them and he sends them, he constrains them to get into the boat now and to go to the other side. Sea of Galilee, about 15 miles long, seven miles wide at the top. They're going from Bethesda here to Gennesaret. There's a, there's a, there's a, uh, Bethsaida to Gennesaret, so they're kind of going across seven miles on the top end of the lake. And he sends them on their way, and then he disperses the crowd. Look, it says, and he sent the multitudes away. They weren't there to see that. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain, notice, apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. Obviously, he told this, at least to Matthew, 
uh, to the disciples afterwards because they weren't where, there to witness this. They were in the boat. They had left. They didn't watch him dispersing the crowds. And then above and beyond that, certainly he must have told them that I went then and I was alone with the Father. And this is where the 13th basket comes in, no doubt. I have meat to eat that you know not of, he would tell them. And there on the mountain with the Father, look, and if he needs to pray, how do we need to pray? You know, If this was life and refreshing to him to be alone with his Father, that should be our practice as well, you know, and, and I think the days we're living in, we're learning more of that and more of that when less of the horizontal is attractive and more of the vertical now seems to be in view and is more attractive to us. So he's there and it says this, but the ship, 24, was now in the midst of the sea. The language, the idea is they're equal distance to land on either side. It was in the midst of the sea, and it's tossed with the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now, Mark tells us in chapter 6 that they're in the boat, and it says, on the mountain where he was praying, he saw them toiling. The Greek word means he sees them, they're tortured in the rowing because the wind was contrary unto them. So Jesus, now it's supernatural because it's at least three and a half miles to where they are. They're three and a half miles from either shore. They're getting nowhere. They've been rowing now since evening started three in the afternoon. Things settled down with a the multitude. They have to be rowing at least six hours by this point in time, if not more. And it says they're tortured. You know, there's they're blisters, uh, they're worn, they're tired, uh, it's, their backs are aching. They're telling, it's going to tell us here, this is the fourth watch. So this is between three and six o'clock in the morning. It's the last watch before light. And they're in that situation because he constrained them to be there. They're safer in this storm than they were with the wrong impression of who Jesus was. The storm was less threatening than the concept that they should take him and make him king right now because he gave them bread. Because, you know, these disciples are going to go through storms until they're martyrdom. Jesus is going to ascend. They're going to touch the world for his sake, but it's not going to be without storm. And they're learning the lessons here that we're all lessing, you know, we're all learning that the last watch, sometimes the storm is there. And we're in the last watch, right before the dawn. That's where we are this evening. Look at the world, look what's happening. And some of us are tortured, rowing, toiling, sore, worn out. And he wants us to see things here, no doubt. I would rather take the correspondence course on all of this. But he's putting some things before us. 
they've been constrained by him to be into this situa- in the situation they're in. And it says, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled. Not by the storm. They're all sailors and fishermen, most of them. But, but there's something else that goes on. Now imagine the, the scene here. He sees them. How long does he watch them as he's praying? He sees them toiling from the mountain. That's supernatural sight. You can't see something in an overcast night three and a half miles away. Our Savior does the same thing now. It tells us in Hebrews 7.25 that he ever liveth and maketh intercession for the saints. And he sees us in the middle of the storms that we're in, whatever they might be. We don't feel that way like they don't feel it. We feel worn. We feel blistered. We feel tortured sometimes. But it's the same Lord. It's the same circumstance. And he sees us supernaturally like he saw them supernaturally. And then he comes to them. You know, this is amazing. He comes to them. What was that like? He, he walked down the hill. They're out there. Uh, you know, and, and somewhere down by the Sea of Galilee, he walks out on the water. I mean, were there any, was anybody sitting there that saw that? Anybody see him come walking down the side of the hill and just walk out across the water? We're not told. You might meet somebody in heaven that will tell you the other side of that story. I don't know. But imagine, they're in a storm. Now, the wind is contrary, so the sails have to be down. And they're rowing, so they're facing backwards, away from the direction they're trying to go in, which is the direction that Jesus is coming from. So you can imagine them in the storm, rowing, and now he's starting to get close enough to be in sight. We don't know, is, is there lightning? You know, are they rowing, and all of a sudden, you know, it lights up a little bit, and Peter says, uh, you see something uh, out there when the, you see it? And never, and what, what are you talking about? Nah, 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 never mind, never mind. You know, and the rowing, lightning again, and then two of the other guys, uh, we saw it too. We saw it. We saw something. You know, so it gets clo- he gets close enough now. The thing that blows my mind in Mark's gospel, it says, it's as though he would have gone by. <laughs> we have to wait to get to heaven to find out what Mark was talking about. What do you mean? It was as though he would have gone by passing lane, you know. He comes walking to them upon the sea. Now look, when the disciples saw, he must be close enough now, him walking on the sea, it says, they were troubled, saying, it is a spirit, a phantasm, a ghost, a a weird spirit, and then it says they cried out for fear. Literally says they begin to shriek and they begin to scream. These are the apostles. You know, here Jesus is getting close enough. No, this is walking on water 101. They've never been here before. The, you know, the, the last storm they were in, he was in the boat with them. So they could at least say we're all going to drown together. This time they're out there laboring and here he comes walking across the water. Uh, the one Greek scholar I read said his, the, the way it speaks here, they saw him walking on the water. They saw his sandals on the surface of the water. They actually saw him walking on the water. So he's got to be close enough now that... Uh, and imagine here comes Jesus. 
He's been praying for the guys. He's finally coming, and they're all screaming and carrying. Aah! You know, you can imagine the scene. These are the apostles. He must be thinking these are the guys are going to hand the keys of the kingdom to. <laughs> they all began to scream and cry. And look, but straightway, immediately, and I like that word when I'm screaming and crying and something is torturing me. Straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Listen, be of good cheer, or your translation might say, be of courage. It is I, which is the ego am I, I am. Be not afraid, stop being afraid, the tenses. So isn't it interesting? He, he says, He says to them, Be of good cheer, take courage. Listen, they hear his voice above the wind and above the raging sea. You, you can, usually can't hear anything when you're in that kind of an environment. You know, people say, well, how did Jesus teach the Sermon on the Mount? There were thousands of people. He must have sat where the hills were nice and round and made an amphitheater and there was an echo and he got good acoustics. No, no, he's got the same acoustics here in the storm. You can't hear anything but the wind screaming, it says, and the, and the, you know, the waves crashing and the guys are all screaming. And they hear him. Be of good cheer. It carries. Supernaturally. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you're in a tough situation tonight, you need to listen closely. Listen closely. He never changes. You can hear him. I'm God Almighty. You can stop being afraid. I need to hear that sometimes from him. In whatever storm that I'm in. And Peter then answers him. We would expect him to pipe up first. Peter answered him and said, Lord, now my King James says, if it be thou, like I've had bad experiences in the past out here in storms when people were walking around that I didn't know who they were, you know. Um, some scholars say the class condition is since it's you, which, but there would still be Peter trying, you know, his identity. Uh, Lord, since that is you, or Lord, if that's you, bid me to come to you on the water. Now, you know the story here. That's a bad move for a guy named Stone, right? Didn't uh, me to come to you on the water. I wondered, the other disciples have been thinking, no, no, we've been through this before. You let him get in the boat, and he rebukes in the wind. What the heck are you thinking, you know? Bid me to come to you on the water. What a remarkable, what a remarkable scene. What a remarkable thing for Peter to say. If that's you, then bid me to come to you on the water. Look, and he said, come. I'd have been thinking, man, I was hoping he wasn't going to say that. I was hoping he was going to say, nah, I'll get in the boat. You know, he hears, come. And it says, and when Peter was come down, so the boat is of a, a decent size. doesn't say he steps out of a rowboat. He had to climb down over the side when he was come down out of the ship 
he walked on the water to go to Jesus. What was that like? The other guys are watching him. He's got to climb over the side and kind of let himself down. And is he kind of doing this? Is he kind of with his foot? You know, how do you, how do you never having done that before, take your first steps on the water, you know? How in the world do you do that? Are there waves? Is he going, whoa, you know? Just imagine this scene. And then there's Peter on the water. It says, walking to Jesus. Now we have two wonders in our scene. And which one's more wondrous? Which one's more wondrous? The Lord of creation, the Lord of the wind and the sea walking, or a sinner like you and I, an ear hacker, walking on the water. You know, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And sometimes he calls us to this place, doesn't he? Come. You know, there's some things if we're not willing to get out of the boat and walk on the water, we'll never see his promises. We'll never see some of the miraculous working. We'll never see the depths of some of his love. He says, come. So interesting, he just beckons him, come. Peter climbs then down out of the ship, and he begins to walk on the water to Jesus. Look, he's defying gravity, right? Right? That's what's going to happen soon when the Lord descends with the shout, the voice of the archangel, and the trump of God. We're going to defy gravity too. So it isn't like he gets to be in the only miracle. We're going to experience a very similar defying of gravity. But it says, but then Peter, when he saw the wind boisterous, it's strong, it's noisy, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. Now look, there's an important lesson there. It says beginning. Beginning to sink. That's the most important time to cry out to the Lord. Some people wait till their nose is going under. You know, Jonah had to wait three days in the belly of the whale before he cried. Some people are just stubborn. This is important. When you're beginning to sink, cry out. When it's starting and you sense yourself going down, cry out to him. Cry out to him. He was beginning. That's important to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. So, you know, sometimes there's not time for a long prayer. He said, Lord, save me. Now look at the response of Jesus. And immediately, immediately, he, he doesn't say, oh, you thought you could do this. Huh? He doesn't say, maybe you need to go down a little more before you learn this lesson. You know. That's not Father God, that's the Godfather. It says, immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand. So look, he's close enough for Jesus just to reach out and take hold of him now. And like many of us, Jesus, you know, Peter ends up closer to Jesus in his sinking than his walking. Sadly, in my life. There are just times 
that I call out to him when I'm sinking and I don't when I'm walking. And Peter's closer to him as he's going down than he was when he was walking. And immediately the Lord takes hold of his life. He has no respecter of persons. He doesn't respect Peter over us. He responds the same way. Immediately he stretched forth his hand and it says, and he caught him. You know, we say when we talk about raising children, more is caught than taught. We always say that, you know. Uh, Gail Irwin would say it perfect. I tried to teach my children to eat with table manners, but they all eat like me. You know, more is caught than taught. Except Peter, more is taught than caught here with him. You know, he ends up, you know, the the wetter, the wiser with this guy, you know. So uh, Jesus immediately reaches out and it says it caught him. He took hold, stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, now look at this. O thou of little faith. I wonder if the other guys are really glad they stayed in the boat. O thou of little faith, why, wherefore, did you doubt? Epistasis, it's an interesting word. It means to take two stands. To stand for one thing, to stand for another. He said, that's the word doubt here. O you little, little faith, wherefore, why is it that you said let me come to you on the water. And when I said, come on, then you were more afraid of the storm than my beckoning. You know, uh, why is that? It's a good question in my own life. Um, you can imagine what the scene is like then, because it says when they were coming to the ship. Now, look, what was that like for the other guys? Here's the two of them, hand in hand, strolling across the water. You know, he pulls Peter back. It doesn't say he drugged Peter waist deep back to the boat, you know. He, he caught him. He pulls him up. Imagine Peter for the rest of his life, you would think. Not Peter, but you would think, you know. Just imagine that scene, two of them walking together on the water to come back into the ship. It tells us here when they got into the ship, in verse 32, when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. And they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Um, John tells us this. uh, Then they willingly received him into the ship, And immediately the ship was at the land where they were going. A second before that, they're in the midst of the sea. Jesus steps in the boat with Peter, and the bow of the boat goes crunch up on the shore. At the speed of thought, they just traveled three and a half miles. They didn't all go, oh, you know. Just he, he, he. When Jesus steps in the boat with them, then they're immediately where they wanted to be. And it's the same with you and I, you know, when he steps into the situation with us. We're immediately at the proper destination. Immediately they were there. And that's why they hear the crunch. They look at each other. The storm's behind them that fast. And they begin to worship and say, truly, 
you are the son of God. That's way better than the bread king, isn't it? It's way better than the Grandpa Stroman. You know, that's the bread king. He says, immediately now they're worshiping, thou art the son of God. And when they were going over, they caught, um, they came into the land of Gennesaret from kind of the, gone from the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee to the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. And when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they knew he was there. Look, they sent out into all, I've got the alls underlined here, all that country round about, and they brought unto him, look at this, all that were diseased, all of them, and besought him that he might touch the hem of his garment. Look, and as many as touched were made perfectly whole. Lepers, crippled people, blind people. You just imagine the the magnitude of this. Now, obviously, the guys are realizing by the end of the day, he's the Lord of land and sea, you know. Earlier in chapter 9, there was one woman who snuck through the crowd and touched the hem of his garment and was made whole. Now... There's multitudes. I don't know whether they, that was something that had spread, but now they're saying if we can just touch the hem of his garment. And just imagine this, multitudes. Imagine Jesus walking through children's hospital. Just imagine. And kid after kid after kid with cancer. You know, we're going to see that. He says in his kingdom, there's no sorrow. There's no tears. There's no disease. There's no pain. There's no death. Sounds better than the news, doesn't it? I didn't even watch today. I'm getting a little depressed with the news, you know. Uh, and, and I'm realizing I'm addicted. I need to go to Timmy's meeting on Monday night. Because uh, I get up and I look at the news on my phone. I look at like eight or eight or nine different periodicals. I look at as soon as I wake up, what happened while well, I was asleep? Did the world end, you know? And I should know because I'm still on earth. I'm not in heaven. But, you know, and I realize I, I need to just put this thing down, you know. Uh, and I need to spend my first thoughts with him and his presence and his word and seeking him and committing the day to him, you know, because this has is, is got me so wrapped up. It's like, and it's depressing. It's depressing. This is amazing. And what he set on the horizon for us is amazing. And it's okay that we're in the last watch right before the, the break of that divine day, right before the sunrise and there's some things that are difficult now but hopefully we're where we should be by his constraint Paul says it was the love of Christ that constrained him you know now chapter 15 we get plenty of time then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees which were of Jerusalem. So this is these are the, the bigwigs come from Jerusalem. Scribes and Pharisees, was uh, Saul of Tarsus there among them? Um, we're not sure. Uh, they come to Jesus saying, they, they're going to ask him a question, why? Now typical in Jewish banter, they're going to ask him why, and then he's going to answer their question with a question. He's going to say why to them. So, in Israel, they make a joke, two Jews, three opinions, you know. So 
the Israelis do that, so it's okay. So it says, why do thy disciples transgress the tradition? Now, you can't transgress a tradition. You can transgress the law, but you can't transgress a tradition. That's how far away they had gotten. Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. Now, of course, the the Passover crowds coming through the area, they had heard about him feeding the 5,000 plus, you know, women and children. They knew there were no, you know, water closets out there. Nobody could wash their hands. And all, so they say, what's the deal? Why are your disciples transgressing, you know, the tradition of the elders? Very interesting by this time. By there's there's kind of remnants of it in the Talmud and the Mishnah. You know, there was a whole part. There were 18 different rules for washing your hands, and each one of them had subcategories. And there was even a tradition that there was a female demon named Shibna. Don't date anybody named Shibna. Female demon named Shibna, and she would come and sit on your hands while you were asleep and defile your hands. Hey, look it up. You know, don't believe me. Be Bereans. You know, so so that you know that it just added to their insanity with why the hands. And then you know the, they had to wash them a certain way with certain water. They they wash their hands this way, you know, and then water would run down their elbows. Then they had to wash their hands this way, so the water would run from their elbows back to their hands. And then lastly, they had to wash their hands with their wrist bent, so it couldn't go up to their elbows again, but drip off their wrist. This is a whole crazy thing. And they're saying, you guys didn't do that out there when you turned three loaves and two fishes into enough food to feed 15,000 people. That's no problem, but the fact you didn't wash your hands, that's a big problem for us. <laughs> there, you know people like this. They, didn't, they don't wash your hands, your disciples, before they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, why? They asked him a why. Here's the why coming back. He says, why do you also transgress, now not the tradition, the commandment of God by your tradition? You know, you're, you're challenging my guys here. Why do you transgress the tradition of the elders? Well, why do you transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your, your tradition? For God commanded, saying, honor thy father... And thy mother, he that curses father or mother, let him die the death. Aren't you glad that you didn't grow up under that law? There'll be a thinner crowd this evening than, uh, and probably somebody different preaching too, but he that curses father or mother, let him die the death. But you say, whosoever shall say to his father or to his mother, it is a gift by whatsoever uh, thou mightest be uh, profited by me, and honor not his father's mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. So he takes them right to, you know, it's, it's Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, the Ten Commandments, where it says, honor your mother and father. And, and then it says that you may live long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth to thee. So when Paul quotes it in Ephesians 6, he says, 
honor your mother and father. This is the first commandment with a promise that you might live long upon the land that the Lord thy God giveth thee. Honor your mother and father has more to do uh, than just listening to them when you're young. That's important. Um, Moms and dads, never take sides with your kids. There's going to be times when they argue, dads, when they argue with the wife. And they might be right, and your wife might be wrong. But that's a secondary error, because they've already been sassy with her, which is the thing they're not supposed to do. So whether you're right, or your wife is right or wrong, we're imperfect. We're all adult children of sinning parents. That's the support group we're part of. Um... There's already an error if the attitude towards the parents is wrong. You know, I mean, I I remember telling my kids, look, I was there. I watched this poor woman lay on a stainless steel table and scream and she squeezed you out into this world. You got to give her something here, you know. I mean, she's the vessel that Almighty God chose and used to give you life. You would not be griping if she hadn't gone through the agony of birth. So you need to honor the fact that God used that vessel to give you physical life. Now, I understand that can be really hard for some of us if we grew up in an abusive home with an abusive mother, abusive father. There can be sexual abuse, alcoholic abuse, verbal abuse, all kinds of things. But still... As we age and as we grow, you know, the, the ultimate expression of this was because there were no Social Security, there were no 401Ks then. You know, when your parents got old and needed care, there was a godly responsibility because they changed your diaper when you were little and they took care of you and they stayed up with you when you had a fever. When the tables turned, there were no retirement homes or, you know, then it was the the family's responsibility, particularly the children and probably particularly the oldest son, to care for the parents when they needed that. You know, and look, most of us today, we're looking, how do I save? I don't want to be a burden on my kids. How do you know? We have a whole attitude today where, where we would rather forego that if we possibly could because we really don't want to be a burden on our kids. And they don't want that either. They just want us to die and leave all the money to them. They don't want us to be a burden either, but I'm joking. Don't laugh. That was not a good joke. So the idea here is what he's saying is this. You've taught these people... That when their parents get old, if there's savings or there's financial security because they've amassed a certain amount of wealth, that would naturally be used to take care of their parents. You've taught them that if they say Corbin, Mark tells us, that in other words, I'm dedicating this money to the temple, that then you're free from taking care of your parents. And Jesus knows they're just covetous enough to take money that's supposed to be used for something else. And Jesus says, and when you do that, you transgress the law of God for the sake of your tradition. And then he calls them hypocrites. These are the big mahas from Jerusalem. In front of the people, he calls them hypocrites. Now look, religious hypocrisy in, you know, dead religious system um, 
You know, these guys had the first five books of Moses memorized. And Jesus would always say to them, don't you know the word of God? You know, one of the Puritans I read said they counted the letters and didn't know what it said. You know, and, and Jesus here challenges them. This, you hypocrites. You, you, you're, you're hassling my guys because you... They they ate without washing their hands the way your traditions, which is not the law of God, said they're supposed to wash their hands. When when to God Almighty, hunger is more important than washing hands. Now, by the way, I'm not against washing hands. Everybody here, because of COVID, you should wash your hands. If you come to my house, you're going to wash your hands whether you like it or not, because my wife is there with a shotgun when you come in the door. It's why wash your hands or die. so cleanliness is next to godliness, you know, in our house. So nothing wrong with that's not the point. This is not about cleanliness. This is about tradition. This is about religiosity. Look, I remember um, Don McClure was telling me one time when he was young, hanging out with Wilbur Smith, who Billy Graham said was the greatest Bible scholar in the United States. And he said, I thought I kind of had to ask a, a profound question. He said, I never knew what to say to him. So I said to him, what do you think is the, the greatest threat to the church in America? And he said, without even looking up, he said, dead orthodoxy. Dead orthodoxy. People are so right, they're dead right. You know, No life with Christ. No, no reality of the presence of the Lord. No yielding to the Holy Spirit. No love for the Word. Just dead orthodoxy. We see that here with the, the, these religious leaders. He says to them, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah the prophet prophesy of you, saying, this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. By the way, to me this is a great verse for worship when we come together. You know, the Lord doesn't want us to be here drawing near to him with our lips but our heart being far away. He doesn't want us coming in here, single guys, singing about a wonderful years while you're scoping out some chick in the church, you know. He doesn't want us singing praise to him while you're thinking, that guy, that guy ripped me, I'd like to slug that guy over. You know, just, he, he doesn't want us drawing close to him with our lips going through the motions when our heart is far away. You know, wonderfully we see people that are in the storm so often. They'll come, and and you can look and see the tears run down their face. Their hands are raised. They've drawn close to him. Lord Jesus, I need you. And it's not just words, and they're not just drawing close to him with their lips and with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He wants our hearts. And the the heart of the problem is always the problem of the heart. But in vain do they worship me. Isn't it interesting? Teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. They've supplanted God's word with the commandments of men. Can you imagine that? If you can't, you better look around the world you live in. How many religious systems and how many places that call them the church call themselves the church? It's the, it's the commandments of men. It's psychobabble. It's everything else but the scripture, but the word of God. And Jesus says, I, I, I don't want any of that. I, you know, you're, you're supplanting the word of God with the church tradition or religious tradition. He, he, he says there's hypocrisy in that. 
And then he calls the multitude unto him, and he says to them, look, it's hear and understand, they're both present tense, be constantly hearing and be constantly understanding. Doesn't happen tonight. Doesn't happen all at once. It's an attitude of heart. For me, tomorrow when I wake up, I want to be hearing. I spend time alone with him in the morning. I want to be hearing. I want to live that way. And I get very distracted. And I want to be understanding under his tutelage. He called the multitude and he said unto them, Be constantly hearing, be constantly understanding. It's not that which goeth into the mouth that defileth the man. Praise the Lord, I'm so glad. I, I don't need to eat escargot or anything, but I mean, I'm, I'm thankful. Not that which goeth into the mouth that defileth the man, but that which cometh out of the mouth that defileth a man. You know, we have to remember, we can taste what's going in, can't we? But we can't taste what's coming out. Sadly, someone else is tasting that. Hopefully it's seasoned with salt. Hopefully it's filled with grace. Hopefully it's sweet. We can taste what's going in. Sometimes we need to remember we don't taste what's going out, but someone else sadly is tasting that. He says, that which goeth into the mouth, it's not what defiles a man, but that which cometh out of his mouth, that's what defiles a man. Then came the disciples, they said to him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees, they were offended after they heard this saying, Lord, these guys are not happy. Now look, um, they're just seeking anything. You know, it's you, you have to use your imagination because this doesn't happen in politics today. It doesn't happen in our world anymore. They just want him to slip up with one word, and they're going to put the you know, fake news was invented here by the Pharisees. Nothing about today, you know. They just want him to say one thing wrong, make one mistake. Again, they're, they're telling him, you, you didn't wash your hands? doesn't matter he just fed a multitude. doesn't matter he just came walking across the water. doesn't matter he just healed everybody in Gennesaret and the surrounding region just by touching the hem of his garment. The problem is this guy doesn't wash his hands. Think how insane that is. Think how crazy that is. Then he answers them and he says this, look, every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both of them shall fall into a ditch. Now, you know, let them alone. He says, every plant that my father hasn't planted is going to be rooted up. He had said the same thing to them when he talked to them about the weed and the tares. Should we go root up the tares? No, let them grow together. My father in heaven, you know, this is all going to be dealt with. It's all going to be separated. There is that which grows that our heavenly father didn't plant. And there's a lot of that around us these days. Let them alone. Look, you know there's people that just aren't worth arguing with, right? Some people, the positions they have, and sometimes they're just antagonistic. All the people don't come to our church, and they'll come up after the service and ask me a question, and I know they're setting me up. They're not really asking me a question. And I'll say, "Are you? what are you setting me up for here? And they don't like me. But, you know, I'll kind of say, well, you know, what's the deal? What are you doing? But I don't argue. You know, you need to pick your battle. Sometimes it makes sense to answer someone and to even challenge them or reprove one another. 
but you have to pick those battles. Vance Havner used to say, a bulldog can beat a skunk any day, but it just ain't worth it. You know, and sometimes we have to remember that in an argument. A bulldog can beat a skunk any day. It just ain't worth it. So Jesus says, look, let them alone. They're blind leaders of the blind. Don't argue with them. Don't bother. When the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the ditch. Then answered Peter and said unto him, well, Lord, declare unto us his parable. And Jesus said, are you also without understanding? You know, Peter. And he says, do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly. We all got that? Whatsoever goeth in at the mouth goeth into the belly. Your ETHs are telling you it's, it's a continuing process. Whatever is going in at the mouth is going into the belly, Jesus said. It doesn't go into your attitude. It doesn't go into your morality. It doesn't go into your understanding. It goes into your belly. And then it's cast out into the draught. Word picture. It goes through. It goes in and it goes out, you know. Like Jonah. His way out was the preferable way out of that situation, by the way. So it goeth in and it cometh out, he says. But those things which proceed out of the mouth, those are the things you don't taste that somebody else does. They come forth from the heart and they defile men. Now look, isn't it interesting Jesus told this and Peter's the one who's saying, teach me. Okay? And Jesus said, you know, it's not what you eat, Peter, that defiles you. Now, in Acts chapter 10, verse 13, the Lord lets down a sheet out of heaven. You know, he, he's there at the house of Simon the Tanner. You guys know the record. And uh, it was considered unclean to be at a tanner's house because of the blood and of the skins. If your daughter married a man and found out that he was a tanner after they got married, she immediately illegally could divorce in Jewish tradition and be rid of that man. Peter crosses those lines and he goes to the house of Simon the Tanner. And no doubt he's laying there that night. One of the main things that the tanner did was made wineskins. And you can imagine Peter laying there remembering Jesus said, you can't put new wine in old skins, Peter. You know, he must have been hearing some of the lessons. And the next day he gets up and he goes on the roof of Simon Tanner and this sheet comes down from heaven. Sandy did a great study on this. The sheet comes down from heaven and the Lord says, kill and eat. And uh, Peter says, not so, Lord. I, I've never eaten anything unclean. Well, you know, here he says, Lord, tell me. And he says, you still don't understand, Peter. <laughs> you still don't get, Peter gets everything in threes. So, you know, so he goes through that situation there where the Lord, there's no f such phrase, by the way, not so, Lord, that those words don't go together. And then after that, Peter's in Galatia, we're told. And there he's there fellowshipping with the Galatians. <clears throat> and Paul says, brethren came from Jerusalem, brethren from James. And when they see Peter there eating Italian sausage with the Gentiles, <clears throat> that they challenge him. And it says Peter withdrew. He, he, he pulled back. It's literally, it's interesting. It says he trimmed his sails. 
And, uh, and Paul said, you're not walking straight-footedly, orthopedeo. You know, you, you're limping. This isn't right what you're doing here. And he has to rebuke Peter before the congregation there. This is after the Lord told you. So this is an apostle, right? <clears throat> don't feel bad if you don't learn any some things the first time or the second time or the third time. You're in good company. I would recommend you get it down by the fourth time, though, but uh, I try that. He says, that which entereth the mouth, that's not what defiles a man. It goes into the belly. Those things that proceed out of the mouth, they come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. Because out of the heart proceedeth evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies, you know, so it's it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles. James tells us that the tongue is set on fire of hell. Okay? There's no racial prejudice in our nation without the tongue. There's no abortion being promoted without the tongue. There's no hatred and rebellion being promoted without the tongue. James says the tongue is set on fire of hell. Jesus says here, look, it's what proceeds out of the mouth. It's the problem. What proceedeth out of the mouth, it comes from the heart. That's what defiles a man. Um, look, Jeremiah says that, I mean, the book of Proverbs says that we should you know, look after our heart with all diligence because from it flow the issues of life, the heart. Uh, the strongest director of your behavior and what you do in life is desire. Desire is a stronger, stronger force than intellect. I know some of the smartest people that have done some of the stupidest things. So I'm different because... I'm a stupid man that does stupid things. But I know really smart people do so. Because the heart will always make a convert of the mind. If you let the heart play with things and you dangle things in front of your heart, desire is much stronger than intellect. And ultimately, the heart makes a convert of the mind. David says, I was conceived in sin, born in iniquity. Psalm 51, verse 9. He says, Lord... Create in me a clean heart. You know, as we read this, all of us should realize we all have heart trouble. He says, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit. It's a beautiful thing there. He says, bara, create from nothing. In the beginning, God created bara, the heavens and the earth. David had fallen. He had made mistakes. He committed adultery and murder. He says, Lord, create in me. I don't, my heart doesn't need to go to rehab, doesn't need to be refurbished, doesn't need to be remodeled. It needs to go in the trash. I need a completely new heart that was never there before. Lord, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Jeremiah tells in chapter 17, the heart is desperately wicked. Above all things, who can know it? You know, our hearts are the things that certainly 
need to be managed. Um, For out of the heart, he says, proceedeth evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, theft, and blasphemies. And if you feel like you're sinking in any of that, all you need to do is say, Lord, save me. Peter taught us that tonight. Lord, save me. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. My wife needs to read that verse. Um, Guard the heart. Look, you look at these scenes, they're great detail. You realize some of this the disciples didn't see were an eyewitness. Jesus took the time to tell them what he did and what happened so it would be passed to us this evening. Uh, very important for us to understand they'd have never known he was on the mountain watching them, praying for them, unless he told them that because he was going to tell us through his word that he's ever, ever lived and make intercession for the saints. He's the right hand of the Father. Supernaturally, he can see you no matter how far you are away. And he sees you toiling and rowing and straining. And uh, we are in that fourth watch right before the new day comes. And look, they were in the mess they were in for being obedient. And so often we feel that way. Lord, I, I listen to what you say and this is what I get. We're in good company. We're in good company. In this world, you have tribulation, Jesus would say to them. And then we realize just to be in that storm, all of a sudden when he's in the boat, we're, we're exactly where we wanted to be. To be there with him, you know, I'd rather be there learning in the storm with Jesus than on the hill with everybody that wants to make him king for the wrong reason. Pharisees, you're surrounded with them. They're alive today. They're still around. And it's an affront to the blood of Christ for somebody to be legalistic. Look, we don't exercise our faith in the context of license. But we do have liberty. We do make mistakes, and we're able to confess our sins. He's able to just forgive us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we never use God's grace to indulge in the flesh. But we have God's grace. We read through this. Legalistic people try to lay trips on us. And sometimes the enemy's just sharp enough to condemn us in some of those things we hear. We just need to run to the Savior and be reminded, yes, the heart. There's all kinds of problems there. But things are not straightened out there by human performance. It's not what you eat that's going to fix any of that. But it's what proceeds from the heart. It's not what you're tasting. What are other people tasting around you? And if they're not tasting me, what are they tasting? You know, I want you to be, I want, you know, if you got to have COVID to give somebody COVID, you got to have Jesus to give somebody Jesus. And he has to be real enough that we want to be contagious. We just don't want to be Christians bumbling through this world. We want to be light and salt. And I think he's speaking to us in, in, a, in a sense that's kind of our context has made everything a bit more pointed, a bit more deliberate a bit more convincing and convicting, hasn't it? The world is is falling apart. The word of God abides forever. 
There are going to be people around you they don't care if you feed 10,000 people. If you didn't wash your hands, they're going to give you a hard time. Bulldog can beat a skunk any day. It just ain't worth it. Don't argue with them. Don't put the gloves on. Don't get in the ring. Uh, that's just uh, what you need to remember. Amen? Uh, read ahead. We're just a Seraphonician woman. If the Lord tarries, we're going to see some interesting things as we follow the Lord and his disciples. But let's stand. Let's pray together. Let's have the musicians come. Worship was great tonight. I had such a great time. Father, thank you for the freedom to look into these things. Storms, Lord, we can all relate to that, Lord. We have shared with each other we're either in a storm, going into a storm, or coming out of a storm, the Christian life. And Lord, let us be wise. Let us mature in these things. Let us be quick to call upon you, Lord. Let us not be afraid to step out of the boat onto the water, Lord, when you bid us to come. And Father, any human works that try to make us justified before you, Lord. In some ways, Lord, those things are an affront to the blood of Calvary, Lord. Your word tells us that we love you because you first loved us, Lord. And we know that's the only fire that needs to burn, Lord, so our lives are clean and wholesome, Lord. That it's in our love for you because we recognize your love for us that There's a passion and a fire, Lord. Nothing to do with washed hands. So, Lord, make these things real. We thank you for these days, Lord, the things going on around us. We ask your blessings the rest of this week, Lord, the men's fellowship, the prayer on Saturday with Franklin, Sunday and Sunday evening, Mondays, Tuesday mornings. There's so much, Lord, getting back into gear again. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus. Pray you bless those at home, live streaming, Lord. And that as your individual sons and daughters, you allow us to glean those things, Lord, from this that would bring forth 30, 60, and 100-fold in our lives, Lord. You do that. We commit it to you, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name and for your glory. Amen.